0: I'd like for you to open your Bibles with me this morning to 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16. You know, a few weeks ago, I began a series called Essential Truths of the Gospel. And we started by looking at the doctrine of justification by faith. Now, before that series... I had uh, brought us a reminder from the Apostle Paul that the goal of our instruction is love. And I, w- I want to remind us this morning that the purpose of teaching and preaching, and the reason you're here this morning, is not merely to get educated. You know, if, if all you gain this morning is information, um, it, it's probably going to do more harm than good because knowledge puffs up. And the more educated you get without transformation, the more dangerous you become and the more carnal you become. So the goal of our instruction is love. And in three messages on justification by faith, my objective was making us aware and reminding us of the essential truth of the gospel that is uniquely different from all other religions and all other religious systems. Even some so-called Christian denominations or Christian um, religions, part of the Christian religion, is uh, in error in making justification something in addition to faith. Justification by faith is the hallmark of the gospel. It is the thing that distinguishes it from everything else. It is the only message that we are hopelessly broken before a holy God, but we can be redeemed by that God through grace alone, by faith in the work that He has done through His Son Jesus Christ on the cross. There is no other religion that offers salvation by grace through faith. Every other system basically says, you're, you're flawed. You have problems. You need to get better. Here's the religious system you can follow to improve yourself. And if you get good enough, one day you'll go to heaven or you'll uh, go to nothingness. Or you'll stop being reincarnated in this futility and you'll graduate to to nirvana. Or something will happen if you're good enough. But until then, you've got to keep working. It's only the Christian faith. It's only the gospel that says you can't fix yourself. You're hopelessly broken. But there's a God who will fix you. There's a God who will redeem you, regenerate you, give you new life cleanse your sin forgive you and the only way you can get that is by trusting him there's nothing else you can do and so i began with that message because that is the heart and soul of the gospel but it is not the logical beginning i think it is the 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 essential core of truth but it's not the logical beginning The logical beginning of the essential truths of the faith is, how do we know what we know? How do we know this gospel? How do we know anything? We know it because God has revealed it to us in His Word, the Bible, and the Bible is the Word of God. All Scripture is inspired by God. That is the logical beginning place of the essential truths of the gospel. And it is the logical beginning place because every other thing we know ultimately derives from the Scripture. All that we know about God, all that we know about His character, all that we know about human beings, all that we know about our problems, all that we know about life, all that we know about eternity and heaven and hell, all that we know about all that matters comes from the Bible. And so the Bible is the place to begin to, to discern all truth. And as Martin Luther led that great event we call the Reformation, that was one of the, his three great cries. By grace alone, by faith alone, by Scripture alone. That we have to come to the foundation truth that the Scripture alone is authoritative to make us wise unto salvation. And so this morning I want to begin uh, another short series within these essential truths, Be three messages, and these three messages have to do with the Scripture, the Word of God, the authority of Scripture in our lives. Now in 2 Timothy 3.16, we have a statement by the Apostle Paul about the Bible. He has been encouraging Timothy to preach the Word, to teach the Word. He's been encouraging him to uh, correct those that are wrong and, and to, to be there in Ephesus and to bring some correction and some understanding. And in the process of all of that, in 2 Timothy 3.16, he makes this statement. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Notice what he says. All Scripture is inspired by God, and it is profitable or useful for teaching. The Bible is useful for teaching. It's useful for rebuking and correcting. It's useful for training in righteousness that any person, man or woman, you understand the scriptural use of generic... Terms and, and, and the masculine and generic is not every man, but every man and woman, every person may be thoroughly equipped and adequate for every good work. The Bible is sufficient, it's what we need. But I want to focus this morning on the statement it is inspired by God. Carrie just mentioned <coughs> one of our praise songs. In, in, in one of his uh, prayers, in the midst of it, that you know, even the, the air we breathe is kind of a metaphor of God. It's a symbol of God. We we breathe the air that He gives us in our next breath. Our life uh, ultimately comes from Him. God breathed into Adam the breath of life. He became a living soul, a, a living spirit. This term, inspiration literally means it is God-breathed. And just as we suck in air, you know, and exhale it, what this passage is saying to us, what Paul is saying to Timothy, is that all Scripture was breathed by God in the man. All Scripture was breathed out by God. It was His Spirit that breathed out the Scriptures and gave inspiration. In other words, God spoke into human beings. Peter, in his second letter, if you want to look there for just a moment, Second Peter chapter one, verse twenty, he says, but know this first of all, Second Peter one twenty, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The declaration of these passages, Peter and Paul, the declaration is that the Scriptures were spoken out and breathed by God into what we now have and call the Bible or or the Holy Scripture. And part of the teaching is that the very words that were written on the page were the words that God inspired to be used. Now, I want to explain that because if anyone is familiar with literature and literary analysis, it doesn't take long before you examine the Scriptures and find out that some writers use different vocabulary from other writers. They have different styles. Some writing is very didactic or very teaching in its nature. Other writing is, is deliberately poetic. All of our poetic books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, are filled with poetry. Um, Lamentations is a poem of Jeremiah. These are, this is poetry. There's history in the Bible. There's the revelation of law in the Scripture. And so there's a lot of different kinds of literature in the Scripture. There's 40 different authors of Scripture, and those 40 authors each have a style, and they each have a vocabulary, and Paul's vocabulary differs from Peter, which differs from John. And so immediately the question comes up, well, if the Holy Spirit guided every single word, how come it doesn't all sound the same? And that's the miracle of inspiration. Because the teaching of Scripture is that God breathed it into the heart of the men who wrote those words down, but He used their mind, He used their vocabulary, He used their style, He used their personality so that they are reflected in the pages of their writing, but He guarded them in such a way that they never made a mistake in what they wrote down in what we call the Scripture and that the very words they came upon. You know, have you ever been sitting down trying to write a letter or write something, a report or something, and you say, "Ah, I need a word, I wonder what it is. You know, and my conviction is, is that as the Scripture writers were writing and they said, man, I wonder what's the best word for that, something popped into their mind, and guess who put it there? That God guided them. And gave them the words so that the very words of Scripture are the words that God gave us. Next week, I'm going to be preaching a message on how and why to study the Scriptures. And when we get to that sermon, I'm going to develop this concept a little bit further. But friends, I want us to know this morning, the very words of Scripture are important. The word choices, the verb choices, the adjective choices. Choices. These words are important. I've spent my whole life explaining the words of God and studying the the grammar and the language and how it's put together because I am convinced in my heart and convicted that the very words and the choice of the words and the verb tenses that are used are the selection and guidance of the Holy Spirit. They matter. They make a difference. We cannot be sloppy with our translation of the Scripture. We can't be sloppy with our interpretation. It's one of the reasons when you memorize Scripture to hide the Word of God in your heart accurately. Pick a good translation, and I mean a translation, and memorize it because it only takes being off a little bit to to lead to error. You don't have to get something too wrong... To to start a new religion. You can just be off a hair, but once that tangent begins, by the time that you carry that wrong concept to its end point, you are far away from truth. It is important to learn the words of Scripture. Because God breathed them. And they're significant. The other thing that we need to recognize about inspiration is that inspiration pertains to the whole of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. When Jesus was on the earth, they already had what we call the Old Testament. The Jews had a collection of writings that they called uh, the Law and the Prophets, and in the Law and the Prophets there were uh, there were included. Uh, they had 22 books in their Old Testament. We have 39, but you have to understand that many of their books were combined that we separate. Kings and Chronicles, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, they had them all kind of put together. Samuel was one, all the minor prophets were one, the minor, the minor writings, all of those kinds of things. But it was the same text, exactly what's in the 39 books of our Old Testament, was in the scrolls. Uh, were were con- in, contained in the scrolls that Jesus used when he was in the synagogue and read the scriptures. It was the same body of material. And, and the Jewish Masoretic text, or the Jewish Old Testament, they wouldn't have called it the Old Testament because it's the only one they had, but the Jewish Testament contained an order of the books such that, Genesis of course was first, But the last book was a historical book and recorded the final ending and and the kind of demise of Jerusalem when Zacharias was killed on the steps of the altar. And Jesus, in in explaining the, the authority of Scripture, said this, From the blood of righteous Abel, in the first couple of chapters of Genesis, until the blood of Zechariah slain on the steps of the altar, not one word of this Scripture will pass away. All of these words pertain to me. And he bracketed the entire Old Testament. And Jesus said of the Old Testament, not one jot or tittle. Now, when, when you ask yourself, what's a jot or tittle? Some languages use little dots or commas or marks above or below letters to distinguish how they're to be pronounced or to distinguish the particular letter that's being used. In Hebrew, there's a little dot or a little thing that looks like a part of a T that adds a specificity to the letters that are being used. And Jesus was saying that the very Word of God, the very words of God, are so significant that not even a breathing mark... <laughs> Not even a dot, not even a little tiny uh, check underneath the letter is going to pass away until every word has been fulfilled. In essence, Jesus was endorsing all of the Old Testament. You say, what about the New Testament? Well, the New Testament wasn't written when Jesus was on the earth. It was written about Him after He left. But it wasn't long after He left that Mark and Luke and others began to write down the gospel message, and Paul began to write letters to the churches, and um, eventually John began to write letters to the churches, and he wrote a gospel, and James wrote a letter, and Peter wrote some letters, and they became collected together. And even Peter, within the very lifetime of Peter and Paul, wrote about Paul's writings. He says, Paul's writings are difficult to understand, Sometimes, as is all the rest of the Scripture. Peter, even in the lifetime of Peter and Paul, recognized the writings of Paul as being Scripture writings. And from the time that John finished the Revelation, the church has recognized that these books we call the 27 books of the New Testament have a divine anointing upon them. They have a divine stamp a ring of inspired truth there is a confidence that the 27 books of the New Testament are the inspired word of God it has never been doubted in church history that these 27 books are the actual inspired word of God and in all the times that that has been debated the church has come back to that settled conviction they have the sense of inspiration friends what we have is a bible 66 books in all 39 in the old 27 in the new that contains the 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 inspiration the very words of god from the first chapter of the first word of genesis to the last word of revelation when i was studying the doctrine of scripture in, in college we talk about three different views held by certain parties within the so-called church and I use that term loosely because I don't think everyone who says they're in the church is necessarily in the church but I was taught and this is a very important distinction I was taught that existentialist, existentialists are, are people who emphasize experience You know, you've got to have an experience with God. Well, I don't deny the validity of an experience, but that experience has to be rooted in objective truth and reality. But the existential concept was that the Bible becomes the Word of God. As I read the pages of this human book, God will speak to me through it, and it takes on some inspired qualities, and it becomes the Word of God to me. Kind of like when you read the Bible and you say, God spoke to me. That's that existential experience. That's all well and good. But friends, the Bible doesn't become the Word of God just because it touched your heart. It is the Word of God whether it touches your heart or not. It is the Word of God if you have a headache. It is the Word of God if your stomach hurts. It is the Word of God if you just spent 30 minutes reading it and it was dry as toast. That's a problem with you, not a problem with the Scripture. The Bible is the Word of God. Liberal thinking was that the Bible was written by human authors. It's got all kinds of mistakes in it. We can't trust the history that it records. We can't trust anything that may touch on scientific data. But somewhere in the midst of all that, there is some spiritual truth. So liberals say the Bible contains the Word of God, but it has a lot of other stuff in it. Now, I'll get to this in just a moment, but friends, that means that you and I have got to be smart enough to figure out what God said and what people said. We've got to be able to sort the difference out there. And the trouble is is that through the years, every time people of that persuasion have landed on what they were convinced was true, something comes along and disproves them. They have to change their mind. All it proves is that they're not smart enough to figure it out. But the Bible does not just contain the Word of God in and amongst a lot of human ideas. The claims of Scripture is the Bible is the Word of God. And it always is the Word of God, whether or not we understand it or or believe it. Now, when we talk about the importance of Scripture... And again, I, I want to ro- remind you this morning, the goal of our instruction is love. Why is it important that you understand what the Bible is? Because it is true truth that is able to give you a successful life in the, in the best sense of that word. Jesus Christ, personified in the Old Testament as the captain of the host of the Lord, said to Joshua, Joshua one eight. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. If the goal of our instruction is love, friends, we need to understand the Scriptures because, first of all, it is the Scriptures that are able to to give you the foundation of a successful life. It is the Scriptures that are able to make you wise unto salvation, that are able to bring you to Jesus Christ. And it is the Scripture that gives you a foundation for imparting that truth to other people who are groping blindly in the darkness. We need to love the Scriptures. I don't mean fall in love with the book you carry around, but fall in love with the words it contains. Because the Scriptures are what speak to you of the character and nature of God. I want to talk a few minutes about how do we know that we know. How many of you have had a course in philosophy at some point in time? You actually had a class in philosophy. Okay, Some of you have, have been through that. I took a class in philosophy twice. I took it one time and I bailed out about a month into the class. And then I took it again when I had to graduate and finish up my credit hours. I had to have that philosophy course, but I was far better able to handle it the second time around. First time I was a freshman and I was in a college that was uh, not necessarily devoted to Christ. And uh, I had a professor that was not necessarily a committed uh, evangelical believer and I went to philosophy class and I got a headache and and my head got uh, it hurt every day of class to the point that I said I'm I'm not going to that class anymore I can't stand this because I would go to class and we were we were talking about in philosophy the first thing you encounter is the epistemological question you know what that is how do we know that we know the study of epistemology is how do how do you know? And we would talk about how do you know that you know? And then we would ask questions like, how do you know that you're here? How do you know that anything that, that you think you see really exists? It's not just a product of your imagination. In fact, how do you know that your own body exists? How do you even know the universe exists? How do you even know that this isn't all a dream and you don't even exist? How do you know this? You know, and after about... I don't know, two or three weeks of that, it was like, ah, I can't think this way anymore. And so I I said, I'm going to come back to philosophy later on. And and, and I bailed out, and then I did come back later on and actually took several philosophy classes and some apologetics courses. And it was a whole different story later down the road. But the question is, and the fundamental question uh, that you have to begin with in philosophy is, how can I know what's true how do I know what's true how do I know what's true about life how do I know what's true about my own existence how do I know the meaning of life how do I know how I got here how do I know where I'm going how do I know if there's a heaven or a hell or if there's a God how do I know any of these things well you gotta have faith okay? I'm getting to that There's, there's there's three possibilities There's three possibilities for how you can know something. The first one is called authoritarianism. You know because an expert tells you. How do I know whatever? Well, go find somebody that's an expert and ask them. And get them to tell you what the truth is. And and you can learn from the experts. It's amazing where you encounter that kind of thinking. Many churches have it, and many whole denominations have it. In fact, it is actually the official doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church that tradition and the Pope are the final authority in the understanding of all spiritual truth. They have the official explanation of Scripture, and they're the final authority. So if you want to know... You, you go to the church, and you ask the priest, you ask the, or you ask the Pope, you, not too many people can ask him directly, but when he speaks ex cathedra, he speaks out of the office of the Pope, and he has the final word on what the Bible means and everything else. He gets direct revelation from God. It's interesting that not only do religions make these claims of authoritarianism, but another place that you find it is in the realm of education. And it goes something like this, and we all tend to be somewhat guilty of it. Well, so-and-so said this, and he has a Ph.D. Well, okay. So what? Does that mean you can check your brain at the door and just rely on, on this person to tell you everything? Where's your head? Just because he has a Ph.D., all that means is he studied a certain body of material... He passed a certain number of courses. He did a dissertation. He successfully defended it, or she did. And now they have this position with Ph.D. after their name. But does that mean you can't think? But it's amazing to me that in the circles of the educational elite, of the educational institutions, that authoritarianism runs ripe and rampant throughout the whole system. Don't question authority. We're the experts. Well, who made you an expert? And can you tell me the meaning of life? How'd you get that? What book did you learn that from? Can you tell me if there's a God? Can you tell me if there's a heaven or a hell? Can you tell me moral truth? Can you explain to me how to live? Can you give me an ethic that is absolute in its foundation? How do you know that it's true? Friends, authoritarianism breaks down because human beings are fallible. It breaks down for another reason that I'll get to in just a moment, But human beings are fallible. And if we choose to blindly follow people who claim to have the answers, Jesus said it's like the blind leading the blind and you're both going to end up in a ditch. Well, if we say authoritarianism is not exactly the place to begin, how about rationalism? Rationalism is the concept that we have a mind, use it. Now, I've been alluding to that a little bit, but rationalism actually makes a science out of it. and says you have a mind, use it. You can logically deduce the truth. You're smart enough. All you have to do is take what you see and evaluate it, and you can come up with the right conclusions. And we attempt to teach that. We teach logic. We teach uh, math. We teach different courses that train the mind. And we learn that if A equals B and B equals C, then A must equal C. That's logically true. Uh, you learn that somewhere in, in your math career fairly early on. And so the concept is that your mind can figure out the truth. And And the whole Western world... Western empiricism and empirical thinking is based upon the concept that, that I can measure it, evaluate it, assess it, analyze it, and come to a logical conclusion and discover truth by that means. The only problem with rationalism is it, it makes two assumptions that are false. The first assumption is that everything that is real can be touched, tasted, smelled, seen, felt, or in some way measured. That everything that's real is accessible to the physical senses and the capacity to measure and analyze and evaluate. And that automatically excludes everything supernatural and everything spiritual. Spiritual because none of that is accessible to the laboratory you will never be able to prove in a laboratory if there's a heaven or a hell you will never be able to prove in a laboratory if there's a god in heaven you can see evidence of him all over the place if your eyes are open but you will not be able to put god in a test tube and prove him you will not be able to prove morality You cannot explain love mathematically. You can't explain jealousy mathematically. You can't explain hate and anger mathematically. We have emotions that actually influence our choices in life, and and govern our course of living, that you will never be able to prove or disprove in a laboratory. And there are those who would like to tell you that it's all chemistry going on in the brain, but nobody can explain how and why it happens. Friends, rationalism comes up short in the first case because not everything that's real can be reduced to laboratory analysis. The second reason it comes up short is because it makes the assumption that the human mind is capable of accurate, infallible, logical deduction. And the Bible tells us that the human mind is just as broken, just as flawed by sin as the human heart and the human spirit. The human mind has been affected by the sin nature to the, to the extent that Paul says in Romans that the natural world is sufficient to tell us about God. It's adequate. The, 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 the nature of God, His essential being and attributes, can be discerned through what has been made. But the problem is, is that the observers, the scientists have looked at the natural world and have examined it, and Paul says when they do so, they have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They have turned aside from what is obvious, and they have bought into a lie. Why have they done that? Because they refuse to acknowledge God in their heart and they will not recognize Him, even though He stares them in the face. And when they go to their laboratory day after day, and the most logical explanation for what they see is there is a God in heaven who has given us intelligent design. But the problem with that is, that ultimately if they acknowledge Him, they must acknowledge that they are morally responsible to Him and that they need to bend the knee and worship Him and they will not do it. It is a moral problem, not an intellectual problem. Our minds are flawed because of sin. And so rationalism will never lead us to truth because we are inherently blind to true truth about the essential meaning of life because of sin we will not see the obvious that only leaves one other category if you can't get there because an expert told you and you can't figure it out on yourself on your own because you're so logically sound then the only way to know true truth is for someone who knows it outside of ourselves to come and tell us. Not an expert, not a human expert, not a mathematician, not a logistician, not a scientist, but we need someone who knows true truth to step in and tell us what it is, and that person is God. Who knows the meaning of life better than the one who made it? Who knows what's wrong with us better than the one who was there when we went off the wire? Who knows how to fix us more than the one who designed us in the first place? Who knows what our problem is? Who knows if there's a heaven or a hell? Who knows the way to get there? Who knows these things? How can we know where you're going? And, 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 and how can we know the way? We don't. Who Who is this Father you're talking about? And Jesus said, If you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. I am the way, both the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Me. But everyone who believes in Me has eternal life. Who can tell us that except one who knows? And who can know that unless it's God Himself? Now, some people in their brilliant thinking say, oh, well, God is so high and transcendent, He lives so far up there that He can't possibly communicate with human beings. That's patently absurd. I don't know if you're wearing a wristwatch this morning, but if you are, do you suppose that was made by a human? Was it designed by someone? Someone with a creative mind who put those little gears and mechanisms and springs and hands together on a face and, and set it up so that it goes around accurately with the solar system and tells us the time. That, you know, you look at those people pay a lot of money for for premium swiss or german watches or whatever people that are have exquisite ability in engineering and and have that capacity to to do detailed and intricate work on some of the world's finest watches people pay uh, tens of thousands of dollars for the best of watches and they marvel at their mechanism and their intricacy don't you think the person that made that knows how to fix it don't you think the person that made it understands it? Don't you think the person who designed the watch can speak watch? I mean, don't they don't they know this stuff? Don't you suppose the, the God who made us, gave us a brain, and invented language can talk to us in that language? You know what's amazing to me you talk to people from any culture and any language background. You know what they will tell you? Just go ask around this morning. Any language, any background, any culture, people who know God, what language does God speak to them in? Spanish, right? (laughs) That's what Pastor Hector would say. English is the language of science, and French is the language of love. But Spanish is the language of God. God speaks to them in the language they they speak in their heart. God speaks to every person in their heart language. He speaks them all. He speaks to the Spirit in ways that every single person can understand Him. And friends, the very claims of Scripture is that this God who made us, who knows the truth, has stepped out of the heavenlies and breathed into human beings His very words, revealing the truth so that we could know it and so that we could believe it. Friends, the Bible is true truth. And the Scripture is given to us in in history, with information that we can freely examine. You remember when Jesus, and I realize I've used this illustration very recently, but I, but I remind you because it's, it's an important key point. Remember when Jesus was healing the paralytic who was let down through the roof, and he said, Son, your sins are forgiven. And the Jewish authority says, Who are you to forgive sin? And he says, So that you will know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sin, I say to this man, rise up and walk. Why is that significant? Because they could not see whether sin was forgiven or not. But they could see if this man had the authority to tell that one to get up out of a pallet of paralysis and roll up his mat and walk out the door. That they could see. And if they could see that, it would give them evidence... Of the amazing authority of this one who could see into the heart and forgive the sin. And friends, God has given us supernatural truth truth about heaven, truth about the human heart, truth about sin, truth about hell. Truth about salvation, truth about redemption, truth about the spiritual life, truth about the unseen world. God has given us this truth couched in terms that are historical that include both scientific and historical facts. Now, the Bible is not a book of science. It doesn't purport to give us a survey and overview of biology. You can't start in the Scriptures and learn microbiology and then botany and zoology and all of those kinds of things. It doesn't claim to be that. But occasionally the Bible speaks with reference to plants and animals. It speaks with reference to the cosmos. It speaks with reference to to the solar system. It speaks with reference to the nature and geography and and natural uh, realm of, of of the planet. It speaks historically... The the Jews left Egypt under a, a, a certain Pharaoh. And they went to Canaan in a time of Jericho. And Jesus came in the rulers of certain Roman leaders. The Bible gives its story in the course of history. And why does it do that? Because we can examine it. We can discover the truthfulness of what we cannot see because of the great accuracy of what we can evaluate. God has been gracious enough to give us revelation grounded in history. You can't take the Bible and say, well, I believe all the spiritual truths of the Bible, but I think when it comes to science and history, man, it's, there's all kind of human error in there. Friends, if you can't believe that the Holy Spirit could protect those writers from making mistakes in history and science, how can you possibly believe that He could protect them in unseen supernatural things that they had no way of knowing? The only way... To, to be able to believe the spiritual revelation of the truth of the Word of God is to believe that God protected the history and the science of all that it contains. Because if He could not prevent error in what we can test and examine, we have no way to know if it speaks to us accurately of spiritual truth. But you may be interested to know this morning that the whole investigation of archaeology was started by a couple of people who wanted to disprove the Bible. And that since they've been digging around in the Middle East, it has done nothing but support the Bible and the accuracy of its claims over and over and over and over again. The Bible will stand the test of truth. And we believe in a risen Savior this morning because twelve men died over what they saw with their eyes. They saw Jesus heal the sick. They saw Him restore sight to the blind. They saw Him make the lame walk. They saw Him raise the dead. They saw Him confront the Pharisees. They saw Him die on a cross. They were there when he was wrapped and buried. They knew of the Roman guard that was sent to guard that tomb. They saw him die. And they gave up in despair and were willing to go back to their jobs and consider their whole uh, endeavor of this incredible man of Galilee to be a false hope and a, and a lost dream gathering in fear of their lives in an upper room with the doors locked. On the third day after His crucifixion, they were there when the one they watched die stood in their midst, alive and well. They were there when He said to Thomas, Stretch forth your hand and touch this flesh and put it in the gaping wound of my side and press it into the holes in my hands and see that I am not a ghost, but I am flesh and blood. Test me. Check me out. They were there on the morning that He ate breakfast with them by the seashore and swallowed the fish and it disappeared in His body. They were there when He bodily ascended into the heavenlies. And these 12 men, and Paul says at another time, 500 others at once, were so persuaded of the absolute confidence of the literal physical resurrection of Jesus Christ that every one of them went to death professing their conviction that He is a living Savior come out of the grave and risen into heaven. And you can check it out. And you can look at their story. And you can examine the evidence. And the only conclusion to which you can come is that we have a risen, living Savior who is exalted in the heavens and He's coming back one day. And all of those original disciples died for the truth of that conviction. Friends, we have a Bible that is absolutely true. And I want to share with you this morning how important it is for us to stop riding the fence and and get off and settle on this issue. We live in a culture that is teaching us that we've got to be um, accepting of all belief systems. That, that we've got to be kind of open-minded and pluralistic. And whatever you believe and whatever I believe is okay. And we can agree to disagree because your beliefs are as good as mine. Now, I want to tell you something, friends. I am not suggesting for a heartbeat that we go out of this room this morning and behave arrogantly, smugly, self-righteously. That we go out with a chip on our shoulders saying, I'm right and you're wrong, ha, ha, ha. Because if we adopt that attitude, we're going to do nothing but drive people away. That kind of arrogance only drives people away from Christ. It will never bring them to Christ. And the goal of our instruction is love. But we need to get off the fence and be willing to come down and settle in the absolute truth of Scripture without compromise. Why is that important? Because it's true. And what you think about it and what I think about it and what somebody else thinks about it makes absolutely no difference. It doesn't change the fact that it's true. Illustrations sometimes come to me while I'm preaching. This one came to me at 8 o'clock. So I'm going to use it again at 10 o'clock. But I never know what's coming out sometimes. So you'll pardon me. But how many of you would agree that I'm holding a chair? Can I see your hands? You you really believe this is a chair. You're convinced this is a chair. There's no doubt in your mind that this is a chair. All right, I believe it's a locomotive. This is not a... Excuse me? That's not politically correct. He called me crazy. Did you hear him? This is a locomotive. And I want to invite you to take a ride. Okay? This is my train. Who wants to come ride with me? I've ruined Carrie. He didn't think I was even capable of this. (laughs) Come ride in my train. Okay, now let me ask you. This is absurd, right? You're laughing at me. Well, you don't realize I didn't get any sleep last night because my dog was sick all night long. So I'm a little weird. But, But let me ask you something if I met you at the door this morning and I was all excited and I said to you, I have got a train down front and I want you to come take a ride during the morning worship service. Will you ride in my train? You know? And, 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 and Tom and Carrie and Ron and some of the elders you know, got me off the side and said, Paul, this is an illustration, right? You know, Ryan says, this is an illustration, right? No, no, no. No, no I've got a train down there. We're going to go for a ride. Now, come on, you're pulling our leg, right? This is some sort of sermon thing you're doing. No, 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 this is real. This, I have a train, and we're going to take a ride. Okay? What would your conclusion be? Your turn. I'm crazy. I'm crazy. I have lost my mind. As concerned elders of the Alliance Bible Church, what would you do with me if I convinced you that I believed this is a locomotive? What would you do? One of the elders would be preaching. (laughs) And if you really loved me, you would either seek to get me delivered or admitted. Because you would know that I had lost my mind. Because this is not a train. This is a chair. And it does not matter what I think about it. It doesn't change it. In fact, if we were to take a vote, and I were to say it were a locomotive, and you were all to say it was an orange tree. Let's let's have a majority vote. How many think it's an orange tree? And all of you say, we all think it's an orange tree. And I say, you're stupid. I think it's a locomotive. Somebody else will walk in the room and say, what are you people fighting over that chair for? It's a chair. It doesn't matter what you think. Do you understand my point? Okay? It doesn't matter what you believe. If what you believe is wrong, it is wrong. Truth is not relative. Truth is absolute. It is what it is. God has told us in His Word the truth. And the thing that we need to get off the fence on and settle once and for all is, it does not matter what you or I think about it. It doesn't change the fact. It is truth. We have to come to grips with that. We ought to love Buddhists. We ought to love them with all our heart. We ought to pray for them. We ought to seek to influence them for Jesus Christ. We ought to share with them the gospel. Do you know why? Because Buddhism will not get you into a relationship with God. Nor will you find eternal life. It will lead you to hell. That's the truth. Doesn't matter what they think, doesn't matter what you think. The truth is God has spoken. Jesus Christ says, he that has seen me has seen the Father. No man comes into the Father but by me. I am the way, both the truth and the life. I am the only way. There is no other avenue. We need to, to get off the fence and settle on that. We need to settle when the Bible speaks to morality. The Bible is absolutely true. I don't care if you think homosexuality is genetic. Frankly, I don't care if it is genetic. I don't care if alcoholism is genetic. It is sin. It is wrong. People are broken and damaged. Don't tell me you found a gene for it. So what? Don't tell me you can't help it. You can't help any of your sin. You're born in sin. You're lost in sin. That's the problem. You need a savior. You need somebody to change you. That's the truth. Doesn't matter what you think about it. The Bible reveals it. It is the Word of God. His Word is absolute. Let God be true, though every man is a liar. God has spoken. We were interviewing candidates Thursday for ministry. And I was inter- interviewing a young man who was completing a seminary training. And I'm pleased to report to you. For, Thursday was a wonderful day. I was so grateful for Thursday. But I asked him, I said, What do you understand the truth of the scripture to be in terms of of uh, accuracy and authority? And he said, I believe the Bible is the word of God. He says, I believe everything it says is absolutely true. And I said, I'm glad to hear that. Explain to me your understanding of Genesis chapters one to three. Are they absolutely literally true? And he said, Yes, there are. Yes, they are. And I said, I'm glad to hear you say that. When the Bible says that it did not rain upon the earth in those days, but a mist used to arise from the ground and water the vegetation. Do you believe that's true? That there was a period in Earth's history where there was no rain. He said, that's what the Bible says. Those are the words of Scripture. I believe that's true. I said, Boy, I'm starting to get impressed here. I said, Romans chapter 5, it says, death entered the world by sin. Uh, sin came into the world by one man and death by sin. So death has passed upon all men for all have sinned. I said, according to Romans chapter 5, there was no death before there was sin. Do you believe that the first that died on this planet was the animal that God slayed in order to provide a covering for the sin and shame of Adam and Eve. And he said, yes, I believe that's true. That's what the Bible says. Do you realize, friends, you cannot believe that and believe in evolution? You can't do it. They're mutually exclusive. You cannot believe that the first death on the planet was the animal that God slayed in the garden to cover the shame of Adam and Eve if you believe in evolution. They are not compatible systems. Let God be true, though every man be a liar. We have got to get off the fence with the Scripture and without shame declare the truth of the Word of God. Wherever we encounter that option or opportunity, we need to share the truth of the Word of God. Do you know why? First of all, because it's the truth. And secondly, because men and women who do not have it are dying. Their lives are miserable. They don't understand the meaning of their existence. And they're going to spend a Christless eternity in hell, lost in their sin forever, because they don't have the truth. And dear friends, the goal of our instruction is love. I'm telling you this this morning because we are compelled by the gospel message to speak the truth in love if by the grace of God and the illumination of the Holy Spirit, God would allow the scales to fall from the eyes of unbelievers and Christians who are duped and have the scales fall from their eyes and embrace the truth and believe. I am so grateful this morning that God has given us a book that He has so carefully guarded that I can trust every word of it. That he is so carefully inspired that I can study it in its grammar and in its very word meanings and the very tenses of the verbs and know that it will lead me to absolute truth. Next week, when we come together, I'm going to share with you how and why to study the Bible. Actually, why and how, that's the logical order. Because here's the good news. You don't need an expert to tell you what it says. I you don't need me. I mean God's called me and He gives teachers to the church and pastors and I'm and I'm grateful to be one, but you have an anointing from the Holy One and you know. And if you are willing, you can come to an understanding of the Scriptures because if you desire to know the truth, God will make it known to you. That's the beauty. Uh, of of sola scriptura by scripture alone and the life of the Holy Spirit in you you have the very author of scripture living in your heart in your spirit and he is with you as you read it what could be better when you wonder what somebody meant than to be able to turn to them and ask them what do you mean when you said this And we're going to look next week at how that process happens because the meaning of the Scripture is accessible to you because you are filled with its author. What a glorious message. Father, I pray that you would open our heart and eyes to the truth this morning. I pray that you would give us the courage of our convictions to believe you, to take you at your word. We are grateful this morning that you have not left us to our own logic to sort it out nor have you left it to self-proclaimed experts to, to tell us what it means or to tell us about true truth. But you have stepped into human history yourself and spoken to men, moved by the Spirit of God, guided by you in the very words they chose to give us your revelation. You've loved us so much. You've written a love letter to us, 66 chapters, 66 volumes, in a book we call the Bible where you have told us the story of your love. And you've also warned us of judgment. And you've revealed to us our sin. You've told us what's wrong. And you've given us a way out. And you've shown us Jesus. And we thank you and we praise you for that this morning. In Jesus' precious name. Amen.